it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Well, not really, Guy Benson. Hi, everyone. This is Andy McCarthy of Fox News and National Review, uh, who in today for uh, my friend Guy Benson. Uh, and it's a real pleasure to be here. It's uh, uh, Usually you'll hear me uh, once a week or so here getting grilled by Guy, who's gotten better and better at grilling as he's uh, – as he's. when I first met Guy, which I – we were joking about this before. I guess it was, it was probably – I don't want to say it was 20 years ago, but something close to that. Um, you could tell uh, – just how smart he was and how uh, how interested in stuff he was. So I'm not at all surprised to uh, see how great he's done and how great the show is. And it's been a pleasure to, to be on it, even though he does ask me hard questions that he doesn't always warn me about ahead of time. Um, uh, and it's it's just great to be here. I For, for those who uh, don't knew, know me, I've been um, on and off Fox for a number of uh, years now and uh writing at national review probably for oh, I, I, this is like 20 years um of that um but before that i was a federal prosecutor in new york i worked at the justice department for about 20 years in new york after growing up the bronx and working in the witness protection program where i basically helped change the names and identities of evil people so they could move in next door to nice people like you. Um, But it was great. It was great training for something they don't teach you in law school, which is how to deal with witnesses who are uh, usually people who are in a, in a very difficult spot in their lives. Some of them are actually, uh, you know, they're cool as cucumbers because they're uh, professional criminals, at least if you're dealing with them on the criminal side. But you know, there's a lot of anxiety that's attached to, especially to the families of people who uh, have lives of crime and then try to cooperate with the government. And that's uh, that's all a very interesting um, uh, way to – certainly was an interesting job to have for a 19-year-old kid anyway. <laughs> so um, – but it's uh, – after that, I was, a, I was a prosecutor in New York. I did uh, mafia cases for a number of years. Uh, in the 90s when I was thinking about uh, whether it was time to move on or not because I'd had a pretty good run for seven or eight years as a prosecutor. Uh, the World Trade Center got bombed in February of 1993 and uh, as it did with the country, it completely changed the direction of my life and put me uh, in a in the ambit of working in national security in a way that you only think you're working in it uh, when you're dealing in the criminal law. The criminal law is obviously enormously important. If we don't have the rule of law, we can't have a flourishing society. But uh, national security stuff is much more life and death. It's about you know what's existential in the country, uh, and it's uh, it, it's different from 
criminal enforcement in many ways. And it's changed the country in many ways. We really didn't have – it's not that there hasn't been a history or hadn't been a history of terrorism in the United States up until 1993. I always think of the World Trade Center. I, I talk about 93 as the uh, declaration of war because while there were rumblings before that, uh, that bombing – uh, really was the announcement that they were uh, the jihadist organizations that we were dealing with. And, and back then, it was really just the germ of what we what became better known as al-Qaeda. Um, it, it was really their announcement that they were at war with the United States and they wanted us to know that they could hit us uh, at any time, any place. And they quite intentionally targeted the World Trade Center again and then ultimately destroyed it because – Symbolically to them, it was the beating heart uh, of the American economic system, uh, and for that reason, they thought it was a uh, a suitable target for what they were trying to get across. Uh, and it it's a very it, it it was a very different kind of existence than merely uh, enforcing the law. Uh, I, I shouldn't say merely because there's nothing trivial about enforcing the law, but it's very different when you're dealing with people who want to absolutely destroy the system versus people who uh, actually are you know, making a lot of money and profiting off the system. It's just a very different uh, – it's a very different kind of thing. And I think you know, the, the history of it, which we're, we're still in the process of, of uh, dealing with and, and trying to – rationalize, but it's had a lot of downside effects for the country. And the upside, of course, is that we haven't had a replication of the 9-11 attacks uh, in which nearly 3,000 Americans were killed. And it's not like they're not trying, right? It's not like uh, our enemies suddenly stopped. Uh, So we did in many ways become a much better, more efficient uh, government in terms of protecting the homeland, but the cost of it uh, is something that we're still running the tab on, and I think not least with something that Guy and I talk about quite a bit on the show, which is the the FBI and what ought to happen with the FBI. My own view of that, for what it's worth, and I've written uh, pretty extensively about this at National Review. Uh, I, I think that the the unintended consequence of the reaction to nine eleven is that the FBI. Instead of being what it was up into the 1990s, which was the premier federal law enforcement agency, which had kind of a night job in national security, uh, what what it became, I think, after the terrorist attacks of uh, particularly the one of 9-11, I mean, 9-11 is the end of like an eight-year spate of attacks, but the Bureau kind of became an intelligence agency with a law enforcement sideline. And that really is not what the culture of the FBI is or should be. Uh, And the reason I say that is it's very important to have good law enforcement. It's very important to have uh, good intelligence, but they're very different disciplines. And being good at one uh, does not make you good at the other. In fact, in many ways, uh, they're almost antithetical skills in that law enforcement has to prioritize the rule of law and the constitutional rights of the people who are under 
investigation. Not because we're good guys in law enforcement, just because if you don't do it that way, what you end up with is uh, very ineffective law enforcement and self-defeating law enforcement. Uh, intelligence gathering, on the other hand, and I, I, this was a real revelation to me uh, when I met people who were in the intelligence community for the first time uh, in a professional capacity. Um, they're not about you know trying to prove a case at trial or bringing people to justice, which is the nice euphemism uh, that we have for it. Um, they're about saving the country. You know, they're about preventing terrible things from happening and preventing uh, Americans from being, you know, mass murdered. Frankly, if you uh, if you talk to them, and that's really the way they think about it. And many times, this is very hard for us to to. It's th- certainly hard for prosecutors and and people who grow up in the culture of the Justice Department to grasp. But you know, it just happens to be a fact that there are many things that are more important in some contexts than whether we're able to do a criminal prosecution and whether we're able to bring someone to justice and whether we're able to uh, prove something at trial. And in national security, you have to make some very important, difficult judgment calls like, you know, do we bring this case against this terrorist where if we convict him, um, maybe we neutralize him forever. But in order to do the case, we have to reveal the identity of somebody who was very insulated that we've managed to infiltrate into the inner sanctum of a terrorist organization and who's giving us life-saving information about what they're up to. So is it worth doing the kind of – doing what you have to do due process-wise to get a conviction if the expense of it is to give up – uh, to reveal a source that's uh, saving American lives. It's the kind of thing that you don't really encounter much in ordinary law enforcement, but it's a staple of national security. So I, I think we're still trying to get the right balance, even uh, we're now, geez, we're, we're now like 22 years later. Um, we're still waiting for people to be tried at Guantanamo Bay. We're still re- waiting to, you know, total up the scoreboard uh, on. Uh, not only 9-11, but the whole chapter known as the War on Terror, which for a long time we regarded as a fabulous success, but now seems to be much more of a mixed bag as we look back. So it would be interesting to continue to look at that. It will be interesting, I think, to see uh, how the new House Republican majority looks at that uh, because it's a really serious issue. You know, There's a lot of things that um, politics can be something of a clown show at times, and uh, there's a lot of point scoring. Uh, and it's it's become a popular fad to take shots at the FBI that God knows they deserve it after the way they've conducted themselves over the last number of years. But it's also very important to the country that we have a good FBI. You have to have a good federal law enforcement agency. The way uh, the law works now and the way our society is, you can't do without a principal federal law enforcement agency. So you might as well have a good one. And there's a lot of work to be done uh, to address the things that have been wrong on that in that regard. So we have to hope they turn to it. Um, to turn to other things, one of the things I'm, I'm amazed by, and um, uh, this probably comes through a lot of times when I'm on with Guy, and that is that we're now in this age where it, it, it just seems that news is coming at you all the time. I remember when I first started at National Review, um, we were still kind of on the tail end of the age where – 
you know, there was a work week and it, it, it kind of wound down on Friday. And, uh, you know, the Clinton people had actually made a um, an art out of dumping out the bad news on Friday. And then, you know, nobody would notice it over the weekend. And then when it, someone finally did notice it on Monday, the Clinton people would be right there to say, oh, that's old news that that, that happened like, you know, what must have been days ago. Um, and then they were like, you know, three scandals on before you could wrap your brain around the first one. So um, th- there was a lot of ability to manage the news cycle back then. I don't think there's any now. I mean, I think that uh, it just seems to me like they're, all the um, the old rules have gone out the door. And I don't think that's necessarily a Trump thing, but I think he definitely did accelerate. It just seems to me like we don't have a normal news cycle now. And every day we come in uh, and we have a bunch of stuff coming at us. And we certainly have a bunch of stuff coming at us uh, today. My friend... Uh, Martha McCallum's going to be here uh, this afternoon, uh, which I'm pumped up about because I get to ask her questions instead of the other way around for a change. And we're going to talk about a long-awaited and necessary reckoning for uh, everything that's gone wrong in, you know, the benign intentions of all these COVID uh, remedies or precautions like masks and social distancing and whatnot. What, What did we really get out of it? So we'll talk to Martha about that. The border's a catastrophe. Uh, we're going to talk to uh, uh, Congressman Chip Roy and uh, Andrew Arthur of the Center for Immigration Studies about that. My friend Charlie Cook from National Review will be by, uh, and we'll discuss with him uh, the Roald Dahl situation. So we have a lot to talk about, and one of the main things I want to talk about is the grand jury in Georgia and this insane uh, four-person of the grand jury who's decided to uh, make – uh, to have her 15 minutes in a way that I imagine has the judge and the prosecutors horrified. Uh, so we'll get to all of that uh, in a few moments. Uh, thanks for being with us today. This is Andy McCarthy in for Guy Benson on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Andy McCarthy with you on The Guy Benson Show with a question. Is there a luckier guy in the world than Donald Trump? When he decided to have a political career, who comes along to run against him but Hillary Clinton, like a historically terrible candidate? He gets jammed up on classified documents down at Mar-a-Lago, and what happens? It turns out that President Biden, of all people, uh, has a similar, uh, actually the same kind of a criminal problem. And now he's under investigation uh, in Georgia in connection with uh, the 2020 election. And who comes to his rescue but Emily Coors? Uh, you're hearing a lot about Emily Kors today. She's at the uh, she's the foreperson of the grand jury that's been investigating uh, Trump and some of his associates in connection with the 2020 election. But I think she's got to be heard to believe to uh, to be believed. How about cut 25? Did you recommend charges against Donald Trump? I really don't want to share something that the judge made a conscious decision not to share. I I will tell you that it was a process where we heard his name. A lot. Uh, We definitely heard a lot about former President Trump, and we definitely discussed him a lot in the room. 
And I will say that uh, when this list comes out, you wouldn't... There are no major plot twists waiting for you. Plot twist. You know, like who's going to be charged? You know, grand jury proceedings in the United States are secret, and they're secret for a lot of good reasons. One is you need to, in, to maintain investigative secrecy in order to make progress uh, in an investigation and have it come out with a just conclusion. The other thing which the judge in Fulton County, Judge McBurney, has been very conscious of is that you don't want to prejudice the due process rights of people who haven't been charged before – they're actually formally indicted by the prosecutor, at which point we give them a lawyer, we give them all the attendments of due process, and they have a fair fight to defend themselves. We don't want people going out and, and uh, uh, dumping on them even before uh, any charges get filed. So this Emily Coors uh, story has to be – if I were a prosecutor and I had any hair left, uh, I'd be pulling it out. I imagine the ju- the judge – uh, in the case, who actually tried to do the right thing and keep a lot of the stuff under wraps, as Emily Coors mentions in her media tour. Uh, I imagine he must be uh, ballistic as well. Let's hear a little bit more from Emily. How about cut 26? Is it, would you say, when it comes to, there are indi- there are indictments recommended, of course. Is it yes. more than 12 people? Is it more than 20 people? I think if you look at the page numbers of the report, there's about six pages in the middle that got cut out allow for spacing it's not a short list not a short list <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you know look if you're the state this is like the last thing that you need it's a catastrophe for the government uh they're going to have to reassess how much damage there is to their case uh, it's like manna from heaven for the Trump defense because what they want to argue, we've already heard, uh, is that this was a rigged prosecution, that it's completely political. They have a lot to work with because the prosecutor in Fulton County, Fannie Willis, uh, is an activist Democrat. But the best thing that could happen to them is to have somebody from inside the investigation uh, who was breaking the rules, the rules that the judge was trying to uphold uh, and – uh, look, she's she's exhibit A for the uh, for the Trump defense uh, catastrophe for the state. Uh, Andy McCarthy with you on the Guy Benson show uh, here at Fox News. We'll be right back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Andy McCarthy in for Guy Benson on the Guy Benson Show. Uh, I have been looking so forward to having a conversation that I'm about to have 
uh, although it's on a topic that actually is is uh, is so not a ha- happy topic. It's one that ought to have people's uh, hair on fire. I, I keep talking about hair. That must be me, right? That's that's, uh, that's my problem here. Um, we're going to talk about the border in all seriousness, and I've actually proposed that uh, the only remedy left uh, with respect to the catastrophe, the national security catastrophe that we have uh, on not only the southern border, it's now spreading to the northern border as well, uh, is to impeach President Biden. And I know full well that, yes, 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 before you start throwing stuff at your radio, um, yes, there aren't enough votes in the Senate to impeach the president. But, you know, the reason the framers had impeachment in the Constitution was because it was a way, they thought, to get better behavior out of the executive branch if it was a credible uh, threat. And the other thing is, under the Senate rules, if if Biden were to get impeached, the Senate would have to close down all business for as long as it took to have an impeachment trial, which means finally the attention of the United States would be riveted for four or five weeks or however long it took at the disaster uh, that used to be a border. And, you know, President Trump famously said, you know, you have to have borders if you want to have a country. Uh, he's, President Trump has said a lot of things I disagree with and a lot of things that are pretty crazy. That thing is absolutely correct. If a country, a sovereign doesn't have borders, you don't have a country. So the reason I want to I've, I've been looking forward to this conversation is uh, I'm a little bit jealous because as a, a federal prosecutor, uh, I argued immigration cases. I briefed immigration cases to the uh, Court of Appeals and the, and the district court. Uh, I've written on uh, immigration since I've been a writer. It's something I've always been uh, very interested in. Uh, and I always like to think of myself as a pretty good writer in these areas. And I'm I'm uh, sad to say that um, I, I think the best writer who's been doing the best stuff in America on what's going on in the border and explaining it to people in terms of what the legalities are of it and in a way that could be understood uh, is our next guest, who is uh, Andrew Arthur, who is a resident fellow in law and policy at one of the best uh, websites in America, the Center for Immigration Studies, uh, and he joins us now. Uh, Art, are you there? Yeah, I'm here, and you've really given me a whole lot to live up to, Andy. I hope I can deliver. Oh, I, I have no doubt because I, I read uh, every sentence you write on this, and what I'd really love you to do is just – Break down for us. My, my contention, just for what it's worth, and, and um, you could shoot this down if you want, but I think I stole it from you anyway, so you probably won't. But um, this this fraud that we have uh, now, I, I regard this as like citizenship or, or – um, not citizenship, but uh, illegal entry laundering where you know these guys – even though we have laws that say people are supposed to be locked up and held until the end of their proceedings uh, if they try to enter the country illegally. They're now going to get a little uh, parole card from Biden, which we're going to treat as if it were a visa, and it's all okay, so they're not illegal when they come in anymore. Can you explain to us what on earth is going on down at the border? 
Yeah, and you know it's important to you know put the big numbers uh, into context, uh, particularly when you're talking about Joe Biden. In FY 2021, we had about 1.66 million uh, people apprehended at the southwest border, and that was almost all under President Biden's watch. We had much so, lower so just, numbers. Uh, so 2021, just 11 months, and almost 1.7 million. Yeah. Uh, almost 1.7 billion. That was a brand new record. Records go, you know, all the way back to 1925. And then Border Patrol turned around and broke that record again in FY 2022, when more than 2.2 million aliens were apprehended at the southwest border. And the problem is, Andy, even those numbers, you know, as massive as they are, don't tell the true story, because uh, Border Patrol can, you know, more or less measure how many people they don't catch who enter illegally. That was 389. Nine thousand in FY 2021, and then almost 600,000 in FY 2022. Those are We don't know who they are. We don't know if they're criminals. We don't know if they're terrorists. We just don't know who they are. Uh, but our Border Patrol agents have been so swamped, you know, trying to, you know, process, tr- uh, transport, care for, feed all the migrants that they're apprehending, that it's created these huge vulnerabilities, these gaps at the southwest border that the cartels and smugglers and, uh, you know, ordinary migrants can use to pass through and make their way into the United States. So, mm-hmm. and this has become a huge issue for the Biden administration. Joe Biden, you know, almost since the beginning has received his lowest marks over his handling of immigration and the border. Uh, inflation, you know, is now starting to tick to the top of the list, but in, uh, but immigration is still a huge vulnerability for the president. So, Art, let, let, me, let me try to uh, break this down just a little bit. What we're, what we're saying is nearly a million people are in the category of what uh, we sometimes refer to as gotaways, right? So these are people who come in and they don't get uh, encountered, which is the euphemism that we like to use because we don't actually arrest people, right? We encounter them. Uh, so you have the people who are who are stopped, who are the encounters, but you have this other million who've gotten in, who basically snuck in without being uh, apprehended at, for any length of time. So that's one million. And then if you take this other group, we got about 1.7 million in 2021, 2.2 million uh, in 2022, nearly 4 million more. Give us a sense of how many of those people have been, quote unquote, paroled into the United States and why that legally is such a problem. So uh, more than 1.8 million people have been released into the United States either on parole or simply on their own recognizance. They were stopped, they were processed, and they were simply let go. So when we add all those numbers up, we're talking about 1.8 million people who have actually been encountered by CBP. And thanks to the great reporting of Bill Malugin and Griff Jenkins over at Fox News, we know that that gotaway number now is actually, when you add in the 2023 numbers, 1.2 million. Right. So all told, you know, under Joe Biden, Three million people who have no right whatsoever to be in the United States are here. But you brought up a very important point. Under the Immigration and Nationality Act, DHS is supposed to detain everybody who it apprehends entering the United States illegally, and not just you know apprehend them while they're process or hold them while they're processing. They're supposed to detain them from the point that they're arrested up until the point that they're either granted asylum or removed from the United States. And Art, let me, and stop, you, let me stop you there for a second, because I think this is, a, this is a point that people don't know and need to know. 
the law is not at all ambiguous about this. The, the statute, which is very clear, uses the term shall be detained. Isn't that right? Yeah, that is correct. And that is a point that uh, is being argued right now in two separate cases against the Biden administration. One brought by uh, the state of Texas and the state of Missouri called Texas versus Biden, a separate one down in Florida, uh, Florida versus United States, because the Biden administration, the, the executive branch, is given a very limited authority to allow individuals who are not admissible to the United States into the United States, and that's called parole. It's not like like criminal parole. Uh, in essence, what it does is it allows a person to enter even though they're inadmissible. They haven't been admitted, but we're going to let them go. And this let, let, meant- me, let me just interrupt again for a second because I, I have some experience with this. Tell me if this is what we're normally talking about. If you have a situation where, for example, the government needs the testimony of somebody who uh, in a big criminal case who doesn't otherwise have a right to be in the United States, but his testimony is necessary. Otherwise, the Justice Department can't make a, a terrorism case or a drug cartel case. You might parole that person into the country to get the testimony, which wouldn't be a right to stay here. But it's it's something that you do on a case-by-case, singular basis for something that is a public need, usually something that has some relationship to the national security of the United States. Yeah, absolutely. Another, you know, very limited example would be somebody that has to come in for emergency medical treatment. If you're in Mexico, you're a Mexican national and you need emergency treatment, we're not going to, you know, stamp your passport before you come in. We're going to grant you parole to come in and get that emergency treatment. The Biden administration has taken that very small exception, and they have very limited authority uh, to use it, and they have turned it into an exception that allows them to release tens of thousands of people into the United States every month. And again, Andy, you made a good point. It's supposed to be on a case-by-case basis for significant public benefit. And the Biden administration says, well, it is a significant public benefit because, well, we can't detain them, so we have to let them in. Can can I stop you there, too? Because I want to highlight an, an important point that you've made on this as well, which I think is another thing that's lost in the debate. On the one hand, the Biden administration is saying, well, we can't we have to release these people because we can't detain everyone. Now, I think most people would think that um, if we have X amount of room for detention, then once you've reached X, then you just don't let anyone else in. Um, The idea that you let them in in violation of the law uh, because they have a right to seek seek asylum status here just seems crazy to me since if you have to violate one law or the other, you would think you would follow the one where Congress says shall be detained. But the other thing I think is amazing here is at the same time the Biden administration says we don't have enough detention space. Am I right that they've actually cut the budget for detention space to ensure that they have even less than they started with? Yeah, in the FY 2023 budget request that the Biden administration sent over, they have 32,000 detention beds, uh, you, you know, for 
per day uh, to hold people. The Biden administration asked Congress to cut that down to 25,000, about a 20 percent cut. And they also stopped detaining anybody who shows up with a kid. They've just categorically announced that we're not going to detain those people, even though there's no exception in the Immigration and Nationality Act. There's some bad case law out there uh, that arose during the Obama administration that said you could only hold the kids for 20 days. That doesn't mean that you can't hold the adults. But the Biden administration has read it that way. And another important point to make, and I, uh, when faced with this exact same dilemma, the Trump administration said, we don't have the detention space. So what we're going to do is use authority that Congress has given us in the Immigration and Nationality Act to send non-Mexican nationals back to Mexico to await their hearings. That was Remain in Mexico, formerly called the Migrant Protection Protocols. But the Biden administration categorically refuses to use uh, Remain in Mexico. And in fact, it's fighting the uh, Texas versus Biden suit is an effort by the states to force Biden to go back to remain in Mexico. They refuse to do it and have gone all the way to the Supreme Court and all the way back. And that case is being litigated right now. Yeah. One of the reasons I think that impeachment is something we actually have to talk about seriously is because I think part of the reason the Supreme Court undoubtedly hates that case is they can't force Mexico to to cut a deal with us. I mean, tr President Trump made that deal with Mexico, but the court doesn't have the power either to direct the executive branch to deal with a with a third country, much less to make the third country do what we want it to do. So it's a real morass for the court. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you in the couple of minutes we have left. Uh, you know, we have so much attention to the southern border, but is it is it fair to say that the catastrophe down there is now spreading to other venues for trying to enter the United States. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, Dry Tortugas National Park, which is at the far end of the Florida Keys, had to be closed for three days last month because so many migrants had landed by boat in the Dry Tortugas. Uh, so people are coming by boat. You know, we're starting to get back to the situation that we saw in the 1980s uh, with Cubans and Haitians primarily coming that way. And we're also seeing increased numbers at the northern border. Now, the, the northern border numbers, uh, encounter numbers, are lower, but the northern border is also a lot bigger and offers a lot more opportunities for people to get into the United States. Yeah, can I can I just uh, stop you for a second? When you say the the numbers are smaller, you mean relative to the numbers at the southern border, not not relative to what it's been at the northern border uh, in past years. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. So in 2021, a grand total of 916 people were apprehended entering illegally uh, at that northern border. By 2022, that had jumped to 2,238, and it's already, you know, north of 2,200 in the first four months of uh, 2023. And that's especially a problem because this is the coldest time of year at the northern border. This is the time that you would would least expect people to enter illegally through there. But it's important for your listeners to note, we don't actually know how many people are coming illegally over that northern border. We only know how many have been apprehended. The right. border is a lot longer. It's 5,525 miles long, as opposed to about 2,000 at the southern border. There are fewer agents there, and the few agents that we do have on the northern border are getting pulled off of that northern border and sent down to the southwest border. 
So if a foreign national, a Mexican national, Mexico is a visa waiver country with Canada. So if you wanted to enter illegally into the United States and you're a Mexican national, you could fly to Montreal. You could go about 40 miles down to Champlain, New York, and you could enter uh, across that border that is largely undefended. So yeah. it was- Art, let me, let me stop you. In uh, 30 seconds, if you could implement one thing first – what would you do? I know it's a loaded question, but you've thought about this a lot more than a lot of people have. I would restrict the Biden administration's ability to parole aliens into the United States. It's already restricted by statute, but I would take away that authority uh, because they've just simply abused it, and they've done so in an illegal manner. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us, uh, Andrew Arthur of the Center for Immigration Studies, who's doing the best work in the country not to be missed work. Uh, And you absolutely didn't disappoint, Art. You were terrific. So thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Andy McCarthy here with you on The Guy Benson Show, and we'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Andy McCarthy back with you on The Guy Benson Show. Uh, Boy, you know, Art, uh, Andrew Arthur, who we just had, is just – fabulous in the way that he can not only explain these uh, complex legal concepts, uh, but also match it up with data, which really conveys to us what a catastrophe we're dealing with. And, you know, a point I wanted to make with him and I'll make now is that, you know, when we talk about the fact that we're moving people to the border, that is, we're moving some of these agents uh, from one place to another place on the border, what you should understand is we're not moving them to do real enforcement work. We're moving them to do administrative work because we've such we've turned this into such a disaster that there's too many people to do uh, anything else. They're just overwhelmed. Uh, it'll continue to be a big problem. Uh, in the meantime, we have other problems to deal with, but happily we have some really excellent people to deal with them. Uh, our, my good friend uh, Chip Roy, congressman from Texas, and my National Review partner uh, and pal Charles Cook, Charles C.W. Cook, uh, will be with us in the next uh, hour. Chip has a lot of things on his mind. We're going to talk to Charlie about uh, Roald Dahl, uh, and I hope you'll stay with us. Andy McCarthy in for Bi- Guy Benson on The Guy Benson Show. Conventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative. Guy Benson Show. Andy McCarthy in for Guy Benson today. Uh, back with you for uh, another hour. And I, I've, if you heard the last segment, you'll know uh, I'm on fire about the border. As fiery as I guess I, I get, but I do get pretty fiery uh, about the border. So I needed to find somebody who's uh, even uh, more whipped up about it than I am. Uh, and I can't think of anybody better uh, to talk about it and a number of other things uh, than the Republican congressman from uh, the 21st con- congressional district of the great straight state of Texas, uh, Congressman Chip Roy. 
Uh, his district stretches from South Austin through the Hill Country uh, to uh, North San Antonio. Uh, and he serves on the House Judiciary Rules Budget Committees. Uh, he's also the policy chair for the House Freedom Caucus. Chip, how do you have time to talk to me? Well, you know what, Andy? Uh, the cause for freedom uh, never rests. You know that better than anybody, but uh, happy to be on the show. It's a twofer. I love Guy's show, and uh, and I get to talk to you, so glad to be on. Oh, it's great to talk to you. And so we just had uh, uh, Andrew Arthur from the Center for uh, Security Policy to talk about the uh, catastrophe uh, at the southern border down uh, by your parts. Uh, but you're there, Chip, day to day with people who are actually living with this national security nightmare. Give us a sense of what's going on uh, in your state and in your district. Yeah, well, look, Andy, and, and I appreciate your focus on it. And, and I want to come back to your piece that you wrote uh, last week on uh, impeachment in just a minute. But look, the state of play is however bad you think it is, it's worse. I was in Midland, Texas yesterday, and I was visiting with some and you know, look, yep. I was down at the river last week, and he goes, it, man, it's so much worse than I thought it was. And and that's what happens. When you go down there and you actually realize it, and you realize that our Border Patrol agents are so overwhelmed they can't do anything between the ports of entry, when you realize how, how overwhelmed they are and the amount of traffic that's coming through, that we're only scanning one out of every vehicle, that they're having to make gut checks on the call, that fentanyl is pouring in, that I had, for example, four kids in the school district in which I live in Hayes County, Texas, die in the last six months from fentanyl poisonings. We had about eight to 10 who were saved with Narcan. We've had 72,000 Americans die from fentanyl across the country last fiscal year. Those numbers continue to go up. We just seized something like a thousand pounds of fentanyl in the first quarter. We've got untold number of immigrants getting sold into sex trafficking, trafficking trade. And you've got cartels getting empowered, making billions of dollars, China getting empowered by virtue of being able to move their narcotics through Mexico. You've got a narco-terror state to our south, and you want and this administration wants to champion that as somehow a success. Tell that to the people of Texas who are dealing with it every day, spending our own taxpayer money in order to try to try to protect South Texas ranchers and Texans, and, it, and it's an uphill climb at best. Chip, you're someone who's always cared deeply not only uh, about your own state, but in terms of the big national security picture, which is the reason, uh, you know, uh, small C conservatives like you and me think that we have a federal government. Um, What, you know, President Trump famously used to say, uh, if you don't have a border, you don't have a country. And. Uh, you know, that that sounds like a slogan, but I think the the rubber meets the road reality that you're dealing with down there tells a very different story, namely that it's absolutely true that if you don't have a border, you don't have a country. Well, and I think that's the actual desire by the radical left, right? They've actually said it when they say we want a, quote, new liberal world order. They don't believe in borders. They don't believe in sovereignty. They don't believe in American exceptionalism. They don't believe uh, that we should protect uh, this country from the onslaught of wide open borders. Now, they always want to turn that into being anti-immigrant. Uh, but like I said when I had that uh, father who was at a hearing in the Judiciary Committee, a father of one of those young people who died in my district, one of those young students. Now, the poor guy's there testifying. And he's, he's an Anglo guy, and he's married to an Hispanic woman. And he was testifying, and his, his lovely wife, who's Hispanic, was right behind him. And I said, let me ask you a question. 
do you think border security is racist? Do you think it's anti-Hispanic? And he said, no. I said, does your wife think that? No. Does her family think that? He said, no, none of his family thinks that. How about the majority of Border Patrol who are Hispanic? They don't think that. It's all a lie and a fabrication. The Republicans have been running away from it from way too long. Hispanic Americans want a secure border. Trump showed that. We have an obligation to do it to have a secure country and a sovereign nation. But, but Andy, this is important. We need to export the rule of law into a stronger Western hemisphere rather than importing the lawlessness of dangerous cartels and fentanyl. This is an easy call. Call it the, you know, doc, the 21st century Monroe Doctrine. Call it whatever. Name it after whoever has the cojones to go do it. Yeah. But we need to have a strong Western Hemisphere led by America, not one where China's infiltrating our backyard. Terrorists are putting people into the United States. Uh, migrants are getting abused. States are getting weakened and cartels are getting empowered. It's yeah. mind blowing that we're allowing this to happen. Yeah, I'm glad you put it, Chip, in, in terms of not only uh, the hemisphere, but the rule of law, because it just seems to me that the what's happening at the border is the border slash national security version of what's happening in a lot of American cities with respect to crime, where if you go to the to the places in the city where non-enforcement of the laws, especially by these woke Soros-type DAs, where non-enforcement of the law is actually felt by the people uh, who are not protected by uh, the police and the, and the district attorneys, they want law enforcement. Those people want to have communities where they have uh, policing and where nobody wants to see bad cops. No one wants to see rogue cops turned loose. But that's not like you know ninety nine point nine percent of our police. Number one and number two, these people are the people who are suffering the most. Just like the people at the border are suffering the most from the failure of the Biden administration to give us border security, which is an obligation of government. This is exactly right. And let me just make sure that all the listeners out there uh, to God's show and that are listening to you and me right now understand this. What is happening right now is purposeful, and what is happening is the direct consequence of an encounter and release uh, form of, of border policy that is chosen by Alejandro Mayorkas and President Biden. They're choosing to release people contrary to existing law, hiding behind asylum and using parole, which is supposed to be for a case-to-case -case basis, and they're then just releasing people into the United States, irrespective of that individual having anything close to a legitimate claim for asylum, which requires, as you know, on law, a credible fear of persecution yeah, for and, your religious or political beliefs. And if I could stop you there for just a second, Guy, just to be clear on this, even when people do have a colorable claim for asylum, a, a colorable claim that they have fear of persecution— it's correct, isn't it, that the, the law of the United States, which is emphatic in immigration statutes, is that people are supposed to be detained until the conclusion of their proceedings, even if we grant them the idea that they may have the rare, colorable asylum claim. Correct. When they get past the first hurdle of saying, OK, do we do we believe that you have uh, a, a reasonable uh, explanation of credible fear? 
and we say, great, now we're going to put you, we're going to detain you. Now we need to adjudicate that claim. We need to know more about it. We need to know where you're from. We need to know what you're saying is the persecution involved. The reason for that is pretty simple. You cannot say that just because you want a better way of life that you can claim asylum. Or back to your point, Andy, you no longer have a border. You no longer have sovereignty because you're basically telling the whole world you can come here. Now, I, I, look, I love the, the fact that we open our doors to people around the world. And God bless virtually, not all, but virtually every immigrant who seeks to come here that I've spoken to at the Rio Grande who want a better way of life, who want a job. I, God bless them. I get it. But we have to have security. We have to secure it for Americans and the migrants. And this is important. The little girls that are sitting in a stash house while we're talking and they're being transmitted into the sex trafficking trade because our government is failing to do its duty. Yeah, well, and and that. that yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, sure. Uh, we're talking to Chip Roy on the Guy Benson show. Chip, let me ask you. Really, the the question that you've uh, that you've suggested in some of the things you're saying about how this is purposeful, how do you deal as a, a member of Congress, uh, who's Congress being principally responsible for uh, setting the terms of uh, a- lawful entry into our country? In most issues that we deal with in the government, um, you're dealing with two sides that uh, have very different ideas about how to accomplish something that we can roughly agree uh, is in the national interest. That's not this situation. We're actually dealing here with people who believe we should have a country and a border and that we have – the government has a responsibility to maintain border security. And on the other hand, we have basically a transnational progressive movement that doesn't believe the United States should have borders – and is perfectly happy in terms of its hoped for radical transformation uh, of our country to allow as many people who want to come in in the hope that that will foster not only chaos, which they they uh, profit from, uh, but also, you know, the express uh, route to change. Um, what do you do about trying to sit down and negotiate with people who are not ever going to be on the same page as you in terms of what the objective should be? Well, so a couple of different approaches. One, you find the very small group, a handful, one or two reasonable folks, and try to uh, come to terms. So, for example, Henry Quay and I introduced legislation to clear cane and uh, build roads so our Border Patrol can actually move along the Rio Grande. There are things that we can do with at least a handful of them, but there's not many. We, after all, introduced a resolution condemning socialism that 100 Democrats voted against a mere two weeks ago. So you can already wipe off 100 as being certifiably insane, and the other 112 are pretty darn close. So look, here's what you have to do. You have to roll over them, and you have to take that story to the American people. This is why I think it is so critically important that we use and, – and I need to call you out on something. I agree very much with your op-ed or your, uh, your, your uh, op-ed the other day uh, on the uh, moment now to impeach Biden. That that as in, in your words, I'm paraphrasing, you said – Uh, This might be the only path or the only choice we have to secure the border. I would take issue with that with one small thing, the power of the purse. We should pursue impeachment of both Biden and Mayorkas, but we should also use the power of the purse to force change. 
when everybody's clamoring about all of the oh the debt markets because the debt ceiling are shutting down the government, Republicans have got to have the fortitude to say, look, we're in this fight and we're not moving. That's what we just demonstrated in the speaker's fight. There were 20 of us who said, we're happy to negotiate. I mean, look, I worked three straight nights all through the night, Andy, negotiating to get right. agreements. I'll do that for the rest of the year. But I ain't frigging moving. I need to secure the border or I will be a failure as a member of the Cong- of, of Congress from Texas. And we need the entire Republican delegation to remember that when James Madison wrote in Federalist 58 that the power of the purse was, and I'm paraphrasing, the, the best effectual tool to combat tyranny of the executive branch, that we should damn well use it. Yep. And so we should do that while we pursue the articles of impeachment, which I think have been uh, clearly – uh, laid out by virtue of violating their oaths, both both Biden and Mayorkas, their oaths to the Constitution. Yeah, I, I don't think there's uh, I don't think there's daylight between us on that. In fact, I want to ask you something more specific on this, which is and I, I wrote about this a couple of days ago as well. It seems to me that, you know, we have this border or this uh, this debt ceiling fight that that uh, is coming up. And you're very effective on this and in terms of, uh, you know, educating the public that the real problem in the United States is not the debt ceiling, it's the debt. And that could be a whole nother conversation. But the fact of the matter is, politically speaking, we don't have in, uh, you know, between the slim margin of Republicans in the House and the fact that Democrats uh, really control the Senate and the White House now, the, the kind of a political consensus that we would need to, to force structural changes in the debt is something that that is probably not uh, attainable now. But it seems to me that what is attainable, and you can tell me if I'm wrong about this, is why don't we take these issues, which are 70, 30, 80, 20 issues for us, like border security, like the idea that Biden wants to embed uh, progressive woke ideology into all the processes of the federal government, and use the debt ceiling fight to – for example, defund Biden's parole program, which is completely fraudulent and illegal under federal law, to defund uh, whatever Biden wants to do with this cockamamie executive order on embedding wokeism in federal processes. Can't we pick, can't we pick out a few things that are very popular issues and approach the debt that way? Uh, Andy, I'm glad you said that. It's exactly right. OK, Um there's going to be a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth about the debt ceiling and about, oh, my gosh, and the bond markets, and we're going to default. Okay, look, that's just not true. We're not going to default. If we did happen to default, it would be Joe Biden who chose to do it. We're going to move forward, and we're going to figure out how to uh, do what we need to do. But our job is to use that leverage point to force change. And you're exactly right. And the thing that Republicans need to focus on we get too wrapped around the axle about, oh, we just got to give more money to defense. And, oh, we've got to, you know, uh, the, the, don't you know, Chip, that the, the, the debt is piling up because of Social Security and Medicare. So don't, don't, don't worry about all that just small discretionary spending. Well, hold on a second. That's still a third of our spending, number one. Number two, you can go target what you just said. We can go to war with the woke weaponized government and force change because of that power of the purse. And we should. Yep. Yeah, I think no, that's exactly exactly right, and I hope it's the approach. Uh, we've been very fortunate to be joined by the great congressman from Texas, Chip Roy. Uh, Chip, thanks so much for being with us. Andy McCarthy, with you on the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Guy Benson will be right back. 
Andy McCarthy back with you on The Guy Benson Show. Uh, Big doings in East Palestine today, uh, weeks after the tragic derailment. Uh, President Trump was there today with with, uh, Trump water. I think he was there to deliver. Um, But the uh, other big issue, of course, is where's the Secretary of Transportation? Uh, And just in case you thought the forewoman from the Fulton County Grand Jury was uh, the only gift that keeps on giving, I give you Pistol Pete Buttigieg. You don't have a message for them? I do, and I shared it with the press many times today. I'd refer you to those comments. Would you mind sharing it with us? No, I'm going to refer you to the comments that I made to the press because uh, right now I'm taking some personal time and I'm walking down the street. Are you going down there? What's up? Are you going down there at all? Um, yeah, I am. When are you going? Uh, I'll share that uh, when I'm ready. Okay, thank you. Can I get a a photo of you? Yeah. Remarkable. So he's he's got he's on some personal time. I imagine at East Palestine they'd like to have some personal time too, right about now. And what's with taking the picture of the of the journalist? <sighs> Andy McCarthy with you on the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Andy McCarthy with you in for Guy Benson on the Guy Benson Show. So of all the crazy stories, uh, and they do seem to pile one atop the other that we've had to deal with in the last couple of weeks. uh, One that I, I, you know, when I first saw it, this idea that uh, the publisher of the great uh, writer of children's books, uh, Raw Dahl, uh, basically was taking the liberty of rewriting portions of his books uh, that they deemed to be offensive to modern sensibilities, which I, I took to mean their sensibilities, uh, not the sensibilities of most people. I thought maybe I was overreacting because the first thing I thought uh, when I saw this was this is about the most Bolshevik slash Stalinist thing I've ever heard. Uh, and then I read – uh, a great piece at National Review by my friend Charles C.W. Cook, uh, which convinced me that I was not only uh, right, but that I, I wasn't nearly fired up enough about it. Uh, so I, I thought it would be great to have uh, Charlie come by and just give us his take on this, which is uh, not only unique, but uh, better put than you'll hear uh, anyplace else. Charles C.W. Cook is a senior writer at National Review. Uh, check out his podcast, the Charles C.W. Cook Podcast, a show about politics, music, technology, roller coasters, golf carts, and the United States of America. Charlie, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, floor's yours. Tell us, why is this like the worst travesty in the history of travesties? Well, I feel this particularly keenly because I love Roald Dahl's work. He was my favorite author growing up. He's also a wonderful author for adults, and his writing is just as surprising and quirky and grotesque uh, there as it is for children. But I think even if you don't have the same great affinity for Roald Dahl that I do, you should be angry with his publisher for 33 years after he died 
electing to allow a small cabal of weirdos <laughs> to read through his books and change in the name of the general public, which as far as I can see has never had a problem with Dahl's work, his words. We're not talking here about revisions made by the author. We're talking about revisions made by people behind the author's back, if you will. In and of itself, that is a problem. It is worse, though, that this is rinky-dink nonsense. Many of the characters in Dahl's books are terrible. Terrible things often happen to them in proportion to their crimes. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, for example, is essentially a precursor to the movie Seven. Each of the children in the book uh, meets an end that is commensurate with uh, flaws. And, if you have and that's, that's one of the books that we're not allowed to say fat in anymore? Is that... Is that right? Well, that's what I'm leading up to say, yeah. is that if you have a utopian worldview and you want to excise from that book and others uh, negative stereotypes, then you lose the soul of the book. Some of the people in that book are crazy. Some of them are fat. Some of them are ugly. You, you cannot remove that aspect of their character from the book, and yet they've removed the words that are used to describe them. And, you know, you use the word Stalinist. I think that's exactly what this is. Uh, and not uh, even, uh, it's not really even your opinion or my opinion. It's literally there in the explanation that has been added by the publisher to the book. In the beginning of these new editions, uh, there is a note from Puffin that says that in order to facilitate future enjoyment, the publisher will be continually updating the language in these books. Now, we've all read 1984 by George Orwell, right? That's literally his job. <laughs> now, in, in, and in that book, he does it for the government, and this isn't the same. The government isn't doing this. The publisher is. The publisher does have the right to do this legally. But the instinct is precisely the same. It is to bring works of the past, works that were written and published at a particular time, works whose author has died, and to make them conform to what are conceived as modern sensibilities, but as you pointed out in your intro, are actually just the sensibilities of people who don't like very book, books very much and really aren't uh, speaking for anyone but themselves. Charlie, how much do you worry about the fact that, uh, and I think it is a fact, that this isn't a one-off? You know, I, ha I had a conversation last night at a dinner in New York uh, with someone about the, the crime problem uh, in New York, and we we're talking about the stop and frisk pro program, which, you know, you can have a lot of uh, debate about uh, how that was carried out. But one of the, the points that uh, was made in this discussion with a number of people um, was that they didn't have a lot of evidence of actual objective violations of the Fourth Amendment. And there was a lot of reliance on this narrative that was built on disparate impact ideology and – you know, the idea of let, don't tell me the the thing that happened. Uh, tell me how the consequence of it uh, either furthers or doesn't further uh, the narrative that we're trying to push. And it just seems to me that there's an awful lot of, you know, living by lies. And it starts with doing things like we're talking about where you airbrush 
not only great literature, but airbrush history and actually even airbrush the, the reality here and now that we're living in? Well, precisely. I want to know what people wrote at various points in the past. I mean, let's take this away for a second from Dahl's books, which I love and think are great work of genius and onto something less pleasant, which is, for example, Roald Dahl's views on Jews. The Roald Dahl was an anti-Semite, at least towards the end of his life. From about 1983 to 1990, when he died, he gave various interviews to the newspapers, and he said flatly anti-Semitic things in them. And in 1990, he said quite explicitly, I am an anti-Semite. I want to know that he said that. I don't like that, Andy. In fact, as, as an author I greatly admire, I wish that hadn't happened. But I don't want people to go through and correct that either. I would like to know what he said in 1983 and 1986 and 1990. I'd like to know who the man actually was. And if he had lived longer than 1990, which unfortunately he didn't, he died of leukemia. If he had died later on and, say, recanted his views, I'd want to know that too because I'd want to see the arc. I'd want to know where he moved from and to. Well, I don't think it's any different with children's books. I don't find anything in any of the Royal Dahl children's books offensive because I'm not a weirdo. But if I did, <laughs> I would also want them to stay as they were. Think about the great authors that we revere now. Do we revere them because we endorse everything in their books? Of course not. Do you want to live in the social society described by Jane Austen? I don't. But I want to know what that society looked like, and I want to know what it looked like through Jane Austen's eyes in the late 18th century and early 19th century. If you change those books constantly, if you update them to fit modern sensibilities, so-called, you can't do that. You're destroying history. I think that's the biggest issue. And you know, the most sinister part of this comes in the editing of Matilda, because Matilda is a book about a, a prodigy who can read everything at the age of five or six. She goes to the public library and she, and she reads essentially every book on the shelf, and this is described. And w w in the original book, the one I read, the one that was published in 1988, the authors that she reads uh, include Rudyard Kipling and Joseph Conrad. In the new edition, Kipling and Conrad have been taken out, right. and instead she reads Steinbeck and Austen. Now, so that we have a reading list, too. A not, to, a not reading list and a reading list. Right. That tells me something. That's more than removing the word fat. I'm implacably opposed to removing the word fat or crazy or ugly or double chin or whatever. <laughs> but that's a little more sinister, right? Yeah. Because what that tells me is that in the eyes of the people who see this as a project they would like to extend to every book, that Jane Austen is on the good list and Joseph Conrad is on the bad list. That yeah. Steinbeck is on the good list and that Kipling is on the bad list. And those people need to go to hell because that is not their call. Yeah, bingo. L listen, you have young kids. I'm, I still have a son in college. But I, I wonder when, when you see this kind of stuff, what are we protecting these children from? And what, are, what kind of a world are we constructing for them? How are we preparing them for the world as it actually is? Yeah. Right. And there's also an irony here in that one of the arguments that you will hear from progressives when they complain about democratic control of school curricula or democratic control of school libraries is that the literature of the past 
that was available to children was far more harrowing. There's some truth in this. If you read Victorian stories or nursery rhymes for children, they're often brutal. They're intended to convey a certain moral lesson. And it may well involve people having their feet cut off or their, you know, a spike put through their nose. There's all sorts of death and destruction and maiming, as there is in many nursery rhymes and fairy tales of the 16th century as well. There's some truth in that. I don't think it means that you should put every book that's ever been published in a school library. I think that's crazy. Yeah. But there is some truth in the idea that a lot of literature is watered down now. But the same people are now defending the the blunting of the edges of Roald Dahl, who relative to the literature I've just described is actually fairly innocuous. So I'm not even sure what they're trying to keep our children from. Do they think that if my kids read about someone who is fat, that the concept of fat people will be reintroduced into the world? There are fat people in the world. There are crazy people in the world. There are ugly people in the world. Look, I I guess what I wonder is – when I when I worry about what are we preparing them for, I I I just think this is so willful because we know that once they get to college, what they're going to be told by their uh, progressive professors uh, is that words are actually violence, um, and I just wonder is this a project to like soften them up for that um, sort of self nullifying moment. Uh, when that gets fed to them down the line? I mean, certainly, if you can excise from the books that children read as children certain words, certain ideas, then when they get to university, they won't miss them. I mean, I think that's probably one reason why I've always been so hostile toward this, this sort of wokeism not just that I didn't actually experience any when I was at university. I was fortunate in that regard. And you turned out but okay. It, yeah, true. <laughs> but but when I when I'm when I came across it for the first time, I had already read most you know m- most things. And uh, I mean, not that I've read everything in the world. I've nothing close to it. But I had already I'd already read the the, the volumes that children read by default and that university students read by default. And so you suddenly find people who say, you shouldn't read Huckleberry Finn. It'll turn you into a monster. And you think, well, it didn't. <laughs> and I, I, I think you may have a point I, that, that if you can prevent at every stage children and young adults from reading this stuff then and, and coming into contact with these concepts, then there's nothing for them to notice when they finally meet the people who want to be in charge of everything they think and say, because they don't have they don't have another version in their in their mind. Yeah. Well, well, wise words and Charlie, a really trenchant piece. It's called uh, "There's No Excuse for Rewriting Roald Dahl" uh, at National Review. Charlie, thanks for being with us on the Guy Benson Show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Charles C. W. Cook of National Review. This is Andy McCarthy at the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Did you personally want to hear from the former president? I wanted to hear from the former president, but honestly, I kind of wanted to subpoena the former president because I got to swear everybody in. Mm. And so I thought it'd be really cool to get 60 seconds with President Trump of me looking at him and being like, do you solemnly swear? And me getting to swear him in, I just, 
I kind of just thought that would be an awesome moment. Yes, that's Emily Coors, the foreperson of the Fulton County Grand Jury, uh, who disastrously, if you're uh, a member of the prosecution there or uh, the judge who was supervising the grand jury there, uh, is out and about uh, and speaking. And I guess it, it, to most people hearing hearing the fact that she's out and about and speaking, uh, that probably doesn't seem like such a big deal. Uh, but for those who actually practice in the criminal law, and in particular those who defend people who are accused in the criminal law, uh, it's really an outrageous thing for somebody who's connected to a grand jury to go public about the case when under the law, uh, grand jury proceedings are supposed to be secret. And again, some of that is to protect the investigation because you can't conduct a competent investigation uh, completely overtly. But most of it is to protect uh, people who are uh, examined or whose conduct is scrutinized by the grand jury. Uh, We don't reveal who they are under our law, uh, and this is one of the great things about our law, until the government's ready to put its money where its mouth is and says it has proof beyond a reasonable doubt. They formally indict you, and then you get a lawyer, and you get discovery of the government's case, and you get a trial, and you get to pick it apart. That's when uh, you are put in the position to defend yourself. It's not supposed to happen through the media. So that's uh, what is happening, and I think it's it's going to end up being to the uh, to the great benefit of the Trump defense. Now, let let me try to explain quickly what's happening there. That grand jury is not a grand jury that indicts people. It, in, under the law of Georgia, it's a grand jury that only conducts investigations. And now it's up to the uh, Fannie Willis, who is the district attorney of Fulton County to go through what was learned in connection with the grand jury uh, investigation that was done over the last seven months of uh, 2022 and determine who to charge. And obviously, based on what we're hearing from the forewoman, uh, there is a long list of people whom the grand jury has uh, suggested charging, and she's uh, implicitly said that uh, President Trump is among them. Uh, That remains to be seen. It will be up to the uh, Fulton County District Attorney, who's not only now got to manage a case that's going to be a mess for her under circumstances where the defense was already taking the position that this proceeding was rigged against her or against Trump by a very partisan Democratic uh, District Attorney. Uh, So this theatrics by the forewoman of the grand jury actually plays right into the defense. Uh, But that grand jury is taking place at the same time as the Justice Department is also uh, exploring whether it wants to bring charges either connected to uh, January 6th and the the Capitol riot or the Mar-a-Lago documents case. So they're working together. And as a result, uh, the Justice Department prosecution, too, runs the risk of being tainted uh, if it turns out that the Atlanta thing uh, has turned into something of a clown show. So uh, a good day for President Trump doesn't mean the case against him is going to collapse. Uh, things don't collapse over uh, over grand jury um, violations, but we'll see what happens. Uh, up next, uh, in, in the next hour, my friend Martha McCallum will be by, uh, and we'll look forward to that. This is Andy McCarthy, Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. 
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Well, welcome back, everyone. This is uh, Andy McCarthy in for Guy Benson. The happy hour, 5 o'clock is the happy hour. He has me on at 5 o'clock. I don't, <laughs> I don't feel like it's the happy hour. Um, Ma- Martha McCallum, my friend, is uh, laughing in the, in the background. Um, I- I'm so happy I get to ask you questions. Well, this, I know it's, it's great to be with you, Andy, and uh, I'm thrilled to see you filling in for Guy. Um, and I always enjoy doing the show with him. And I, 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 I'm going to have to just keep myself from asking you questions because I always want to ask you questions well, about everything. So good to be here with you. It's delightful to be with you. Martha, of course, is the executive editor and anchor of The Story uh, at 3 p.m. on uh, Fox Eastern Time. Uh, she's a Fox News pol- politics co-anchor uh, and also the author of Unknown Valor, a story of family, courage, and sacrifice from Pearl Harbor to Iwo Jima. And also check out her podcast, The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. Uh, so, Martha, there's so, many, there's so much stuff going on as there seems to be every day today. Um, we, we started today talking about uh, the grand juror, the, uh, the foreperson of the grand juror, Ms. Coors, uh, who's out speaking. And I'm just I, I have to say, doing what I used to do, I'm just flabbergasted by it, um, particularly under circumstances where you have a judge who was very careful last week when he issued an order uh, letting out only very small portions of the grand jury report because he was concerned about the due process rights of the people who hadn't been mentioned. And then we have this grand juror just out spilling the beans. It really is stunning, Andy. I mean, I was just watching some of the video of her talking to reporters, and she's just spilling almost everything she feels that she can. And you also can't help but feel that she's taking – she's very gleeful – about the process and the numbers of people that she says will will be indicted as a result of this Georgia case, which, of course, is looking back at uh, the post-election period in Georgia, the scrutiny of the process, the electoral process in Georgia, the request that President Trump made over the phone to the secretary of state there uh, about, you know, finding 11,000 votes, which I think everybody remembers. Now, the former president says he did nothing wrong. He Again, has called those phone calls perfect. That's for a jury to decide. But, you know, to have so much sort of enthusiasm and glee uh, about being the foreperson in this process and just kind of spraying all of these suggestions about people's lives and what they might face uh, feels really wrong in in pretty much every way when you watch it, Andy. Yeah, it's wrong every way. Uh, legally, that's for sure. But but the thing that's amazing about the legal troubles that Trump has gotten into is that there always seems to be, and I don't know if this is just like luck or whatever it is, but there there always seems to be um, a political freight that gets dropped onto every investigation that makes the politics of going forward on the case more complicated than the law is. Um, we saw that with the the classified documents, which is now – I think they put a lot of energy in trying to make that case and then suddenly Biden ends up having the same problem Trump has and it's, it, it becomes very complicated. Here, I've really thought that the big complication for 
for the Atlanta case, for the state case, is that when I was in the Justice Department, they never let a case go to the state where they wanted to do it. So you can't really stop the state, but you there's a political back and forth that goes and, and you know, a lot of these things end up in turf battles. I wonder if this makes it much harder for Atlanta to make the case to the Justice Department that they should go first mm-hmm. rather than let the special counsel finish first. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's a great question. And you can see why both sides have an interest in, in going first here. And I don't know that one negates the other, right? Yeah. It, there's nothing that says that one has to go first. There's no legal right for the federal government to go first. Uh, in, in places like New York, it's sometimes easier for the federal government to come first because there's a there's a constitutional provision that screws up the New York prosecutors. So the Justice Department pretty much gets its will. Here, I think that they probably have to do much more negotiating. But the thing you always worry about as a prosecutor is some other office screwing up your witnesses. And if I were if I were the Justice Department watching this grand juror, um, you know, the one thing you don't want to have happen is they bring a case and they lose. Yeah. I'm wondering, uh, I knew I was going to end up asking you questions. <laughs> I'm wondering here if, you know, if you're on the Trump team, can you, does this give you um, an appeal? Does this give you an ability to say, you know, she had an agenda, the four person had an agenda? What do you see in there legally? And uh, you mentioned that there's always a political implication here. Has she helped him in any weird way? She helps him because their defense at trial will be that the process was rigged. So this helps. And legally, it probably doesn't make any difference because in the end, you can't really challenge the case before the trial happens. And generally what happens is if if someone gets convicted at trial, they're not going to throw it out because of the grand jury. But it does help them tee up their their political approach to, to this case. And these kinds of cases always have that kind of a an aspect to them that the normal case doesn't. And that's why I wonder with Trump, especially we're in this unprecedented situation where we have um, a major candidate for one of the parties who's under very active – you can't even say it was – it's one investigation. It's several investigations. Mm-hmm. And how that plays out. Like let's say he – let's say Atlanta pulls the trigger next week and charges him. Um, which they may decide to do. Maybe they want to change the story and just get it done and, and, and move on. I wonder how that plays in the campaign. Well, what we've learned watching Donald Trump over the years is that um, you always have to go to sort of the, the next layer of, of thinking it through. In prior situations, you would say, oh, well, if someone's indicted, you know, that makes they're, – they're gone. That right. rules them out as a candidate. However, there's, there is, you know, this a segment of the population, which is sizable, that is very supportive of him still. He's at 43 percent in polling that says, who would you like to be the GOP nominee? And a lot of those folks are very ardent supporters, and they, would, they could see that as a clarion call, uh, as a reason to rally to his side. Uh, he will argue that he did nothing wrong. It's a similar argument that he made during the impeachment trials on the phone calls that, with regard to – and discussions with regard to Hunter Biden and Ukraine. Um, you know, his defense, you can see how he's going to say, look, you know, I wasn't talking about 11,000 illegal votes. I was talking about recounting. Right. You know, let's make sure that the votes that – if those votes are there, we need to make sure we find them. Yeah, so, I, I've, I've always thought they've made too big of a deal 
about that because the 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 context of that conversation and I, this is not it's not a good conversation no matter how you slice it but the context was he was saying that his lawyers and investigators had come up with you know hundreds of thousands of fraudulent votes mm-hmm. and what he meant was i just need 11,799 or whatever it That's was right. he wasn't saying invent 7,000 uh 11,799 for me um I, it's i think that's a, a lot easier point to make um in publicly taking on the case on the courthouse steps than it may be uh inside the courtroom that re- that'll remain to be seen but i i just you know i've always thought with this that um yes as a theory it's possible that that his supporters would rally to him but what eventually happens when you do when you actually file an indictment is there's now concrete charges. There's a narrative. If they do their job competently, it'll be a speaking indictment that'll read like a story. That's right. And I think that's very different. Well, the the thing is that then when you go into a debate environment, you have someone up there who is running against you who has that to to, to fall back on, right? He can say or she can say, um, you know, I'm sorry, sir, but you've been charged with electoral Fraud, you know, whatever the charges come out to be, you know, and this is let me just read to you from this indictment from fake news. Exactly. (laughs) So, I mean, you can easily see how um, it becomes a a tool on both sides. It could be a tool for him to rally his troops. It could also be an obvious, um, very strong weapon against him, especially in the debate environment. Let let me jump because I want to I want to get your um, impression on this. So so Brett Stevens from The New York Times writes this uh, op ed. Uh, the Times, I think, has has kind of low-keyed uh, the reporting that came out last week from this Oxford epidemiologist whose name happens to be Thomas Jefferson, ev- evidently. Um, His mom had big hopes for him. Yes, and, and, <laughs> and, and it may they may have uh, come to fruition. That's Who right. Knows? Um, but basically he says not only that masks had no positive benefit uh, in the in the COVID mess – uh, but also that he, he even combines them in conjunction with uh, pre- other preventive measures, hand hygiene, physical distancing, air filtration. He said nothing. You know, respiratory disease, this had no effect. Um, Brett Stevens highlights this today and is basically asking, you know, where's the reckoning for this? And in the meantime, we're starting to see the disastrous reckoning uh, for example, in reporting that we had at Fox this week uh, about Chicago and Illinois in particular, where you have an astonishing number of schools where they're not either reading or performing math at proficiency. We have an education crisis in this country, and it's it feels like nobody's paying attention to these kids. I, my heart breaks for their futures, for their education, not only, and it, it you know, it, it's in part due to the lockdown. It certainly set kids back across the country. One of the other really frightening trends, which I've been watching for a long time, and there was new reporting on this week, is how many kids just never showed up again to school. Right, they're lost in the system. My guess is that a lot of these folks are in seventh grade, eighth grade. Those, that's the area, especially in you know. Um, areas that are less economically advantaged where we lose kids a lot. Yep. Middle school is a tough is a tough 
period, okay? That's why there are schools specifically designed. There's one called the Link Community School in Newark to be that link between grammar school and high school because you lose so many kids then. So we have lost kids. They just never showed up again to school. Then you've got kids who were just robbed of their education experience during the pandemic, not to mention the emotional toll that it took on them that we're learning. We now know. I mean, we have evidence. We're seeing what happened. And you're right. Where is the reckoning? So I don't understand. You know, people talk a lot about eliminating the Department of Education. If ever there were a clarion call for them to show why they exist, it's an emergency national program to catch up kids. You could give, you know, some form of reimbursement, whether it's, you know, scholarship or something off of your state tuition to every high school or college kid who spends this summer working in a tutoring program to help kids catch up across the country, right? There are ways that you could bring the nation together behind this and say, we have a crisis. Sarah Huckabee Sanders is addressing it now in Arkansas with a new bill. Um, And make sure that people understand what's going on. Because if you lose the education level of an entire generation of students, we're never going to be able to compete with China. We're never going to be able to compete with anybody. We're, We're... done. We're degrading as a society. There's no picking up that ball. Um, this is extremely important. And the White House talks about it never. Yeah. I, I, I can't think of anything that's more important to address. But the blunt fact is until we get a, a real reckoning, like we actually have, there was a lot of discussion about whether these were benign uh, measures to take or not. And very little, if any, thought given to how damaging they might be. And now we're dealing with the wages of that. Yeah. And that's the problem. You know, you can't be in a position where you politically, you don't want to talk about it because you were the person who instituted the rules in the first place, but you got to be bigger than that. You have to say, look, we did this. We we were in a bit of a panic at the time. It was very scary for everyone. We now know the mistakes that were made because of it, but now we're going to make it our number one priority to make sure that we, we make it up to these children. Uh, you know, we have to be adults about this and, um, This is a very, you know, Dr. Jill Biden talks a lot about the fact that she's dedicated her life to education. I don't understand why this isn't her number one cause as the first lady of the United States. It's kind of a perfect thing for her to own and take on. Catch up our kids. It's a great slogan and you can put it into action, I think, in a very quick and easy, somewhat easy way. Amen. Well, that's a great place to leave it. And I hope Jill is listening. I hope so, too. I've said it before. Um, I think it's, you know, you always look for a first lady to have a cause that she can really own. And because she's a teacher, I can't think of a better one. Amen. All right. Well, Martha McCollum, thank Thank you you very much. Great to to see you. you. All right. Well, we'll be uh, right back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Andy McCarthy back with you on the Guy Benson show, uh, still in the happy hour. Um, here's a not so happy story, um, although I guess a, a fortunate development for Alec Baldwin uh, in that a uh, the prosecutors in New Mexico have been forced to drop the uh, main charge against him, or at least the most severe charge. Obviously, the big charge in the case, which involves the uh, the shooting, the accidental, tragic accidental shooting of uh, Helena Hutchins on the uh, movie set uh, that they were, uh, where they were filming uh, a Western. Uh, in that case, the prosecutors in New Mexico brought a uh, 
manslaughter case, involuntary manslaughter against Alec Baldwin. Uh, I've written about this for Fox News. I really think that, um, you know, the criminal justice system is not constructed. It's not designed for tragic accidents. The criminal justice system really ought to be reserved for intentional wrongs. I'm not saying that something like this doesn't belong in court, but it belongs in civil court where uh, I actually think it's been in civil court. Uh, my understanding is Baldwin uh, actually settled the case for some uh, in, in a civil proceeding for some uh, undisclosed amount. But that's why you get these mega settlements in civil court. The criminal proceedings, we can't even get prosecutors in this country to lock up people who are willful criminals who are violating the law, some of them uh, violent criminals. So it seems to me that it's really um, overwrought to to bring this case. And to bring it the way they brought it was just preposterous. It wasn't enough to have a potential 18-month sentence, prison sentence, for uh, involuntary manslaughter if Baldwin is convicted. Uh, they decided they also needed to lop on this what we call an enhanced sentencing provision that would have increased his sentence up to uh, six and a half years, an additional uh, five. Now the uh, now the prosecutor has had to walk away from the five year enhancement for the slimmest or or the the most embarrassing of reasons, which is that uh, this law did not exist at the time that the shooting happened. Uh, and therefore, it's what we call in the law an ex post facto violation, uh, and uh, the, the government's had to retreat from it. I think it would be a good thing if they uh, would just retreat from the whole case. Uh, there's a lot of a lot better uses of the criminal justice system, but at least you know, look, justice is working slowly. Uh, but at least in this instance, at the moment, it's working in the right direction. Uh, We still don't have, I don't think, a trial date for Baldwin, but when he goes to trial, he'll be looking at 18 months, which is the the modest sentence that's available for involuntary manslaughter. Okay, the crew tells me that it's time to wind up, or at least that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. It's Andy McCarthy on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. Andy McCarthy back with you on the Guy Benson radio show. Earlier today, we talked to Texas Congressman Chip Roy uh, about a a number of topics. And uh, here's how that interview went. We just had uh, uh, Andrew Arthur from the Center for uh, Security Policy to talk about the uh, catastrophe uh, at the southern border down uh, by your parts. Uh, But you're there, Chip, day to day with people who are actually living with this national security nightmare. Give us a sense of what's going on uh, in your state and in your district. Yeah, well, look, Andy, and, and I appreciate your focus on it. And, and I'm going to come back to your piece that you wrote uh, last week on uh, impeachment in just a minute. But look, the state of play is however bad you think it is, it's worse. I was in Midland, Texas yesterday, and I was visiting with some – you know, look, yeah. I was down at the river last week, and he goes, it, man, it's so much worse than I thought it was. And, and that's what happens. When you go down there and you actually realize it, and you realize that our Border Patrol agents are so overwhelmed they can't do anything between the ports of entry, when you realize how, how overwhelmed they are and the amount of traffic that's coming through, that we're only scanning one out of every vehicle, that they're having to make gut checks on the call, that fentanyl is pouring in, that I had, for example, four 
kids in the school district in which I live in Hayes County, Texas, die in the last six months from fentanyl poisonings. We had about eight to 10 who were saved with Narcan. We've had 72,000 Americans die from fentanyl across the country last fiscal year. Those numbers continue to go up. We just seized something like 1,000 pounds of fentanyl in the first quarter. We've got untold number of immigrants getting sold into the sex trafficking, trafficking trade. And you've got cartels getting empowered, making billions of dollars, China getting empowered by virtue of being able to move their narcotics through Mexico. You've got a narco-terror state to our south. And you want to, and this administration wants to champion that as somehow a success. Tell that to the people of Texas who are dealing with it every day, spending our own taxpayer money in order to try to try to protect South Texas ranchers and Texans. And, it, and it's an uphill climb at best. Chip, you, you're someone who's always cared deeply not only uh, about your own state, but in, in terms of the big national security picture, which is the reason, uh, you know. Uh, Small C conservatives like you and me think that we have a federal government. Um, what it, you know, President Trump famously used to say, uh, "If you don't have a border, you don't have a country." And uh, you know that that sounds like a slogan, but I think the the rubber meets the road reality that you're dealing with down there tells a very different story, namely that it's absolutely true that if you don't have a border, you don't have a country. Well, and I think that's the actual desire by the radical left, right? They've actually said it when they say we want a, quote, new liberal world order. They don't believe in borders. They don't believe in sovereignty. They don't believe in American exceptionalism. They don't believe uh, that we should protect uh, this country from the onslaught of wide open borders. Now, they always want to turn that into being anti-immigrant. Uh, but like I said when I had that uh, father who was at a hearing in the Judiciary Committee, a father of one of those young people who died in my district, one of those young students, now, the poor guy's there testifying, and he's, he's an Anglo guy, and he's married to an Hispanic woman. And he was testifying, and his, his lovely wife, who's Hispanic, was right behind him. And I said, let me ask you a question. Do you think border security is racist? Do you think it's anti-Hispanic? And he said, no. I said, does your wife think that? No. Does her family think that? He said, no, none of his family thinks that. How about the majority of Border Patrol who are Hispanic? They don't think that. It's all a lie and a fabrication. The Republicans have been running away from it from way too long. Hispanic Americans want a secure border. Trump showed that. We have an obligation to do it to have a secure country and a sovereign nation. But, but Andy, this is important. We need to export the rule of law into a stronger Western hemisphere rather than importing the lawlessness of dangerous cartels and fentanyl. This is an easy call. Call it the you know, doc, the 21st century Monroe Doctrine, call it whatever, name it after whoever has the cojones to go do it. Yeah. But we need to have a strong Western Hemisphere led by America, not one where China's infiltrating our backyard. Terrorists are putting people into the United States. Uh, migrants are getting abused. States are getting weakened and cartels are getting empowered. It's yeah. mind blowing that we're allowing this to happen. Yeah, I'm glad you put it, Chip, in, in terms of not only uh, the hemisphere, but the rule of law, because it just seems to me that the What's happening at the border is the border slash national security version of what's happening in a lot of American cities with respect to crime, where if you go to the to the places in the city where non-enforcement of the laws, especially by these woke Soros type DAs, where non-enforcement of the law is actually felt by the people uh, who are not protected by 
uh, the police and the and the district attorneys, they want law enforcement. Those people want to have communities where they have uh, policing and where nobody wants to see bad cops. No one wants to see rogue cops turned loose. But that's not like, you know, 99.9 percent of our police, number one. And number two, these people are the people who are suffering the most, just like the people at the border are suffering the most from the failure of the Biden administration to give us border security, which is an obligation of government. This is exactly right. And let me just make sure that all the listeners out there uh, to God's show and that are listening to you and me right now understand this. What is happening right now is purposeful. And what is happening is the direct consequence of an encounter and release uh, form of, of border policy that is chosen by Alejandro Mayorkas and President Biden. They're choosing to release people contrary to existing law, hiding behind asylum, and using parole, which is supposed to be for a case-to-case basis, and they're then just releasing people into the United States, irrespective of that individual having anything close to a legitimate claim for asylum, which requires, as you know on law, a credible fear of persecution yeah, for your and, religious or political beliefs. And if I could stop you there for just a second, Guy, just to be clear on this, even when people do have a colorable claim— for asylum, a, a colorable claim that they have fear of persecution. It's correct, isn't it, that the the law of the United States, which is emphatic in immigration statutes, is that people are supposed to be detained until the conclusion of their proceedings, even if we grant them the idea that they may have the rare colorable asylum claim. Correct. When they get past the first hurdle of saying, OK, do we do we believe that you have uh, a, a reasonable uh, explanation of credible fear, and we say, great, now we're going to put you, we're going to detain you. Now we need to adjudicate that claim. We need to know more about it. We need to know where you're from. We need to know what you're saying is the persecution involved. The reason for that is pretty simple. You cannot say that just because you want a better way of life that you can claim asylum, or back to your point, Andy, you no longer have a border. You no longer have sovereignty because you're basically telling the whole world you can come here. Now, I, I, look, I love the, the fact that we open our doors to people around the world. And God bless virtually, not all, but virtually every immigrant who seeks to come here that I've spoken to at the Rio Grande who want a better way of life, who want a job. I, God bless them. I get it. But we have to have security. We have to secure it for Americans and the migrants. And this is important. The little girls that are sitting in a stash house while we're talking and they're being transmitted into the sex trafficking trade because our government is failing to do its duty. Yeah, well, and and that, that yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, sure. Uh, we're talking to Chip Roy on the Guy Benson show. Chip, let me ask you really the, the question that you've um, that you've suggested in some of the things you're saying about how this is purposeful. How do you deal as a member of Congress uh, who's Congress being principally responsible for uh, setting the terms of uh, lawful entry into our country. In most issues that we deal with in the government, um, you're dealing with two sides that uh, have very different ideas about how to accomplish something that we can roughly agree uh, is in the national interest. 
So that was our interview earlier today with Chip Roy. If you'd like to hear the whole interview, please check it out on the website, GuyBensonShow.com. Coming up next will be The Home Stretch. We'll be right back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Andy McCarthy back with you on the Guy Benson Show in the home stretch. I guess this is now the home stretch of the home stretch. Um, but uh, it's uh, it's been delightful to be here and do this today. Uh, most of the time I work by myself, uh, which is what the writer's lot is, and I'm kind of my own boss, so I'm totally disorganized. So today I have the benefit of having a boss in Christine who's kept me completely <laughs> organized and who's now going to tell me how we how we uh, make it to the home stretch, to well, the I wire. Just, I just want to say first and foremost, thank you so much, Andy. It has been, I've been working with you since I started my career here in 2005 on the John Gibson days where he would say, oh, oh call up Andy McCarthy, get Andy on the phone. And so it's, <laughs> you have been, you're such a great guest to book and uh-huh. you're just so nice and I was very excited when you agreed to do this. So that's, thank that's, you. That's so nice of you to say. Although now I understand from working with John, you would think that I was nice. I get, I totally. Get <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've had a few. John's of, a sweetheart, by the way. Yeah. I, oh, I, yeah. I, He's like family to me still. But um, so I don't, this is what a segment we call we do a lighter story. Usually I like to think of this as the segment where guy, no matter what I say, what I do. Uh, just makes fun of me. It just it inevitably I am wrong and he is right. And well, that's how we have to end so it. You have a much better shot today because when guy calls me, it's never lighthearted. Like he he wants to talk about like what what is about to explode? Who's about to get indicted? Is it a murder or a terrorist attack? So um you got a better shot tonight. I know. Well, it, it is funny. Maybe next time, you know, today is National Margarita Day. He's never asked me to call you for that, to, to see if you enjoy a, a margarita or two or three, or in my case, four or five he, on a Saturday. He, well, yeah, he might enjoy our segments if I enjoyed a margarita or two or three. Um, well, this 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 topic is pretty interesting. I, I brought it to you, and I said, wow, we definitely could talk about this. I know you have – how many children do you have? I have two children who are uh, pretty far apart. In age, I have an, my older guy is in his mid thirties in Houston, and my younger guy is in uh, college in Illinois. So uh, there's about sixteen years between them. So we almost feel like we grew up as as a as a nuclear family in a multi generational family. And when I was both younger and older, we had other generations of the family living with us. So I have I actually have. Um, uh, a lot of experience with what this story is about, which is the that it's becoming more common after bottoming out. And I guess they say the, the 1980s, um, it, we're now having an upswing in the generations living together as a family unit. And while most people think of that as especially um, nowadays when under Obamacare, I think adults are 26, right, or, or children are 26, Um so most people think of that as the um, you know the the kid who won't move out who's down in the in the basement. But this is actually the the swing here is that you have more parents who are moving in with their adult children. Yes, and it's funny because I you know the Wall Street Journal has this article out and they're talking about one family that actually did it that brought their parents in 
to their home and they have children. And to me, I, it's a little sad. We, I, My husband and I just sold our house. We capitalized on the market. And uh, we're in an apartment right now and we will buy again. And I just assumed, because my mother's 77. Oh, no, sorry, Mom, 76. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, easy, easy. Whoops. Easy. Yep. And my mom, we call her Judgy Joyce. She's very judgmental and that would be a <laughs> problem if she heard that. But we just assumed that she was going to move in with our family because uh, she's a widow. My father, unfortunately, passed away. Uh, a while ago. And boy, oh boy, was I wrong. Because I think, which she kind of caught on to me, I have a nine-year-old. She goes, I know why you want me to move in. You want me to be your nanny. She goes, and guess what? I raised my kids and I'm not falling for that. And she said, no way. (laughs) Well, so I I don't even want to try this with my mom who uh, is uh, in her 80s and uh, still in the Bronx. And I think would probably chase me with a broom if I showed up with my suitcase. She said, you know, quite enough of that. And I think if she ever left the Bronx, they would have to close the Bronx. So I, I, I just um, I, I don't see that happening. Much as I love her and would, would uh, love to have her, I would have to. And, you know, they say you can't go home again. You would have to go back. Yeah. And this is the Bronx. So if it was, you know, a lot of our a lot of our performances here and appearances here at uh, at Fox involve uh, a lot of primping, which in some parts of New York is fine. In the parts of the Bronx where I grew up with it, it probably wouldn't go over as much. So I, I just don't, I don't think I can go back there. Now, what about, again. you said you have a son in his 30s. Would it be, would you and your wife ever say, okay, we're closing shop around here and we're just going to pack up and move in and be with his family? Oh, you said my wife is coming too? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, God. Um, I don't. I don't know if we can we can do that. Um, I, I actually, you know, look. I, I think. Um, I you know I th- part of this is also how you feel about the part of the country. Like when I was a when I was a young guy when I was in in my mid to late thirties as as my older son is uh, is heading into. Um, I just wanted to be a lawyer, uh, and I was a, a prosecutor in New York. New York was the place to be. It was the best place in the world to be. He's a musician. And, you know, I really think that by the time he was, you know, getting to be 30 and then past 30, there's a lot of places in the country now that are better to be in New York, more affordable, more livable, uh, especially, you know, modern New York where, you know, the trend lines are bad. Um it just seems to me this is there's better places uh, for a young guy that age. When when I was that age, New York was the place for me to be with what I wanted to do. I don't think I don't think so with him. I think he's, Houston's a much better move for him. I I agree. I mean, New York is. I grew up in New Jersey, so and what we do in this business, New York is the place to be as well. So yeah. you know, there was no way I was ever uh, leaving here. But um, Dan, you are a musician. I'm a musician as well. I'm in my mid-30s, too. Um, so I always thought about Nashville was a great landing spot yeah. for that. Um, Austin, Texas was always a good one. You know, there are, you know, I live in New York now, like I was telling you earlier, and it is expensive. I mean, when I'm trying to start a family, I'm, you know, looking possibly for a ring for my, for yeah. my girlfriend. You right, know, right. Things are um, things are expensive, but yeah, I mean, I love it here in New York. But so I think I'll I think I'll stay for a while. But yeah, there are other kind of cool places uh, in your 30s and 20s you can go to. Yeah, I was skeptical about for for a musician. I was skeptical about Houston, but I think it's been a great move for him. 
And there, you know, you know better than I do. The the, the scene in New York for young mu- musicians is much better than it is in a lot of places. Very in the much country. so. Yeah, but it's still. It's it's a tough life in terms of making ends meet, and New York is not making it easy for anyone to make ends meet anymore. No, it's true. But I'm I mean I love it. I love walking around here and being around in New York City and coming into the Fox offices and you know. Well, great. Dan, let me ask you something. You said you're you're about to be looking for a ring now. Oh, when no. you propose in the proposal, <laughs> could you say? And guess what, honey? My parents are moving in. Oh my goodness, <laughs> that would yeah. be a deal breaker. Yeah, no, I'd, I I'd bifurcate that one if I were. <laughs> <laughs> Get her, get her, uh, get her on the hook first. Uh, well, they're waving at me. So, uh, as much fun as this has been, uh, I guess I, I need to sign off. This has been Andy McCarthy. It's been uh, a delight to be here. It's really been a pleasure. Guy will be back tomorrow, so all will be well. Uh, and thank you for sharing your afternoon with us. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.